Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Radio Free Mormon. How are you? Good evening, Mr. Real. How are you doing? I am so good. It's uh, it's my birthday. Oh, okay. I hope Maven will come on, or at least we can hear everybody else as I sing happy birthday to you. I love it. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Where's Maven? Happy birthday, dear Mr. President. Happy birthday to you. And many more. On Channel 4. <laughs> yeah, I'm 44 <laughs> years old. I, I'm probably more than halfway. You know, I don't think I'm the kind of guy that makes it to 88. Well, there's a poignant line in Bridge Over the River Kwai when the character played by Sir Alec Guinness says in a reflective moment, there comes a time in a man's life when he realizes he's closer to the end than he is to the beginning. Yeah, I'm definitely there. Hair is getting a little peppery, a little salt and pepper going on. And uh, I played pickleball, learned how to play pickleball for the first time in the last week and played again uh, last night and was so sore afterward. Yeah. Um, like Dirty yeah. Harry said, a man's got to know his limitations. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably crossed them. All right. <laughs> so we have got a lot of stuff to go over tonight, Mr. Radio Free Mormon. And uh, we'll start tackling if you're ready. Well, the, the title of the show, what's the title of the show, Bill? This is your show. What's the title? Episode 91. This is September wait, wait, 14th. I think it's 93. What's that? I think it's 93. Let's, uh, let me just really quickly look just to be sure. I mean, I, I have trouble once we get over, you know, 10, but. Let's see here. Give me one second. It may be. And while you're doing 93. That, Sorry you... about that. I, I, re okay. I messed up. So let's, it is episode 93. It is September 14th, 2022. And the title of the episode is The Tar and Feathering of Joseph Smith. I want to let the audience know something happening behind the scenes here. Please. Is that you told me that you picked this subject because you thought that this would be a relatively easy show to do. And then you started digging into the research and you yeah. realized it was a bottomless pit. And this isn't the first time this has happened nine, to you. Nine pages of stuff. And uh, I, I know what the major issue is in this in this discussion, right? We, you and I both know why I picked this one. Yes. Uh, because we want to get at what the motives were behind the mob uh, to tar and feather Joseph Smith. And we've heard rumblings and we wanted to get to the bottom of it. And uh, I think for the most part tonight, we're going to do that. Um, and I, But there's so much, so much stuff. And uh, so let's just jump into it and we'll start to plug along. I will delay you no further. Okay. So the first section I want to talk about, this is to set up the story with the context of how Joseph Smith was in Hiram, Ohio, and what other historical context is needed for the listeners and the viewers to be able to grasp this moment historically. So in 1818, John and Alice, known as Elsa Johnson, came to Hiram, Ohio, about 31 miles southeast of Kirtland. Now, I lived in Cleveland. Kirtland was about an hour. Uh, I lived in Sandusky. Sorry, I lived in Sandusky, and Kirtland was about an hour and 20 minutes or so 
uh, east of me. Um, and it was about maybe 25 minutes, half an hour from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, so the Johnson family lived in several log cabins while they built the home. And we can show. Let's they got a nice, uh, nice piece of property too, didn't they? Yeah, because there talks about multiple log cabins on the property while and they and the family lived in multiple log cabins while the house was being built across the street. And I think, yeah, I think that property on both sides of the road and it's mm -hmm. very, very nice farm, a, a, a huge beautiful house that they had that they let Joseph Smith stay in, but I'm getting ahead of the story. Go ahead. Yeah, no sweat. So you can see uh, Cleveland, Ohio, there, kind of on the left-hand side. If you go a little further to where Lake Erie kind of dips down at its lowest point, that's going to be near the point where I live, which is Sandusky. And then if you look a little further west where the islands and stuff are, uh, those are going to be like Putin Bay and Kelly's Island. Um, the land near that would be like uh, Port Clinton, Ohio, and that's where I worked. But I went to Kirtland numerous times, and um, you can see Hiram, Ohio is just a little south of Kirtland. And you say it's about and, 31 miles? Yep, it says 31 miles southeast of Kirtland. Uh, the Johnsons, it says here they lived in several log cabins while they built a home directly across the road. The Johnsons had 15 children. I've been to the Johnson farm numerous times. It used to be 15? a welfare farm. 15. Nine lived to adulthood. And this is important. Um, the nine that lived to adulthood were Alice, Fanny, John Jr., Luke, Olmstead, Lyman, Emily, Miranda, and Justin. And Justin Luke was not a big name back then, but there was a kid named Justin. Well, good. He was ahead of his time. But Luke Johnson and Lyman Johnson are significant in that they end up being members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in 1835 when it's first yeah. organized, correct? Yep, you got it. They are the two members that should stick out the most in our minds because, as you point out, they were in church leadership. And there's another name in there, which we'll get to, having to do with Nancy Miranda. Yes, uh, Miranda Nancy Hyde. Miranda yes. Nancy Johnson at this point. Uh, correct. Sorry, we will get to that. Thank you. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, Sidney Rigdon became a pastor. Now, this is these are little bits and pieces of the story. So Sidney Rigdon, completely separate from the Johnson family, um, Sidney Rigdon became pastor in Mentor, Ohio. Now, that's adjacent and northeast of Kirtland. So if you see on the map Kirtland, if you just went just a little north and just a little east, touching Kirtland, uh, is uh, Mentor, Ohio, where he was pastor. He became converted to Mormonism via Parley Pratt's mission, whom he knew. And while Smith was in uh, New York, uh, as the restoration is getting underway, after Sidney Rigdon baptized John and Elsa's 19-year-old son, Lyman, in February of 1831, the couple read the Book of Mormon and believed. By May, all members of the Johnson family were baptized, except Olmstead, who had moved to Mexico. Later that year, the prophet, seeking a peaceful, secluded place, in which to continue his work of translating the Bible, accepted an invitation from the Johnsons to live in their home. Joseph and Emma came on the 12th of September, 1831, with their four-month-old adopted twins, Joseph and Julia Murdoch. Uh, Murdoch, uh, their, their father, Murdoch, had lost his wife, and so he, he assumedly didn't feel capable to raise these kids on his own. And Joseph and Emma had just lost a set of twins themselves. And so uh, Brother Murdoch gave his two twins to the Smith family, essentially allowing two parents to raise these children, uh, assuming again that they'd be in a better situation, and also to help uh, Emma and Joseph to overcome the loss of the twins that they that they that had passed away. Um, 
Let's see here. I think Brother Murdoch's first name was Matt. No, I don't think so. No. Was no. it? No, I don't, I don't know. Marvel. Little. I don't, I don't think so. That's, okay. Yeah, is that uh, Daredevil? Totally. Okay. So there, I picked up a, a RFM reference. The world's first uh, blind superhero. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Needs a walking stick to get across the street, but he can defeat bad guys That's with one hand behind pretending. his back. That's just when he's pretending. Yeah. Convert Sydney and Phoebe Rigdon settled with their six children across the road in one of the Johnson's log cabins. Um, Elsa Johnson, we'll remember this story from church history. Elsa Johnson, again, her formal name was Alice, but they called her Elsa. Elsa Johnson, the wife of John Johnson, who had suffered from chronic rheumatism in her arm for years, asked John to take her to Kirtland so that the prophet Joseph Smith could heal her. When the prophet blessed her, she was completely healed. By the way, this is one of the few stories in Mormonism that I think has some truth to it. Not that I believe in healings outside of maybe the placebo effect, but there is even reports among the Quakers about Elsa not being able to lift her arm and after this blessing being healed, not being able to move her arm fully. So it is an interesting story in Mormonism in terms of healings. Um, some of the following is overlap, but this was on the church, uh, church uh, website and it adds some additional historical facts. After returning to Ohio from Missouri in late August 1831, Joseph Smith made preparations to move his family from Kirtland to Hiram, Ohio, where he planned to resume his translation or revision of the Bible, a project he had been working on since 1830. The move occurred on the 12th of September, 1831, following a conference held in Kirtland that same day. In Hiram, Joseph Smith and his family stayed at the John and Alice Elsa, Jacob's Johnson home, sleeping probably in a back room on the main level. And I think I've got a picture of, there's the Johnson farm. See that beautiful house? Yeah. And and just note on the second picture, that, that back section of the home that's attached, that was a later add-on. All that would be there at this time would just be this, this house, right. uh, this two-story rectangle home without the addition on the back. Um, let's see. Uh, in the end of October, the Johnsons partitioned an upstairs room, creating a workspace for Joseph Smith in the southeast portion of the, of the house, where he worked on the Bible revision. Beginning in September, John Whitmer served as scribe for this project, <clears throat> working on the books of Matthew and Mark until Sidney Rigdon assumed this responsibility in November. It is interesting, as we've talked about Adam Clark's commentary being heavily plagiarized to make up much of... Uh, the Bible revision. It's interesting to note that Sidney Rigdon and John Whitmer were the two scribes for that project. And of course we don't know, but they never mention it that Adams Clark, Adam Clark's commentary was involved. And it does make you wonder if they just didn't say it to help Joseph kind of obscure that uh, or whether uh, they weren't aware that it was being used either, but just a little side note. Yeah. Periodically Joseph Smith traveled to Kirtland or other townships in Northeastern Ohio to conduct church business, but he spent most of the fall in Hiram. Any thoughts on any of that data, RFM? No, you're doing great. I love it. Cool. Section B, how the mob mentality was built up and tensions arose. In early 1831, Ezra Booth and Simons Ryder, both ministers, joined Mormonism. Booth and Ryder became strong supporters of Smith and Rigdon and Mormonism. While Booth I, was wait, on a Bill, can I yeah. ask, How do you spell Simons Ryder? Because I'm always confused on that. The correct spelling of Simon's Rider, so you don't piss him off, would be S Y M O N D S R Y D E R. Two, two Y's, no I's. Correct. Oh, okay. Well, that's easy then. 
Yes, that's easy. It should be, right? Yeah. Okay. We would have a problem with that. No. While Booth was on a church mission to Jackson County, Missouri, he witnessed a dispute between Edward Partridge, Bishop of the Mormon Church in Jackson County, and Joseph Smith. Booth became disillusioned with Mormonism and returned to Ohio to report what he had seen in Missouri. Simon's writer also became disaffected for multiple reasons, though one of those seems to be that Joseph had an alleged revelation. I shouldn't say seems to be. There is certain evidence that this at least played a significant part in his disaffection. Um, and what was that, here. Bill? The misspelling what? in the revelation? Yeah, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm just trying to grab the spot here. Uh, disaffected. For you. What's that? I'm just tap dancing for you right now. Yeah, no sweat. Disaffected for multiple reasons, though. One of those is that after Joseph alleged a revelation calling Ryder to serve a mission, Smith and Rigdon both signed the official call, but misspelled Ryder's name with an I instead of a Y. The horror. Ryder thought the revelation from God, thought a revelation from God would never do such a thing. And I, I always wondered, why didn't he read the Book of Mormon? Like that thing had more spelling grammatical errors than... Than anything. So once you lower your expectations, it shouldn't have been a problem, huh? I know, but it's kind of like Jaws 2. This time, it's personal. This time, yeah, right. It's about him instead of about, uh, you know, tapers and horses, right? Or Coriantumer. Right. Cory Coriantumer. Um, or that, that person to be named from here on forth as the brother of Jared. That guy, yeah. <laughs> um. When Booth and Ryder met in the fall of it, by the way, I want to show one other thing too. Just a little cool little point. Uh, Simon's Ryder was upset that his name was spelled wrong. That's a fact. There are other issues playing into it. We'll get into what some of those are because they play a part in why this mob showed up that that night or early morning. But it is, uh, oop, I don't want to get there that yet. This here. Let's, you go. mind pulling that comment off the screen, Maven? Um, if you'll notice here, this is Simon's writer's tombstone. They did spell his name right, RFM. Well, thank goodness for that. Do you notice anything, though? Well, let's see. Um, elder of the, what, Decipal Church? What is that? Yeah, they they spelled the word disciple wrong. Oh, they left tombstone. out the S. He's got to be turning in his grave pissed. Well, at least they misspelled the name of his church that he was an elder of and not his own name. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, he's whatever kind of disciple he is, he hopefully he's a good one. Um, you know, God does have a sense of humor from time to time. It's the little chuckles that keep us going, the bits of humor and good cheer. Right. Yep. So when Booth and Ryder met in the fall of 1831, they shared their experiences and concluded that they had been deceived. They both left Mormonism and returned to their former faiths. Both men became strong critics of Mormonism in Ohio, focusing on Smith and Rigdon. Um, Booth, at the encouragement of a Reverend Ira Eddy, wrote nine letters to the Ohio Star newspaper published between October and December of 1831. Uh, these letters criticized Mormon doctrines and Smith's and Rigdon's character and accused the Mormon leaders of a scheme to get control of, the, of their followers' property. Mm. Um, and I'll just note, Dan Vogel will recognize this book. This is Mormonism Unveiled by Eber D. Howe with critical comments by Dan Vogel. In Mormonism Unveiled, all of those letters are contained in here if folks do want to read what, uh, what Booth and Ryder were writing back to be published in the paper. Dan Vogel so, is a phenomenon. 
Yeah. And I think he's in the, I think he's in the audience tonight. All right. These letters were widely circulated and generated fear, uh, generated fierce local opposition to the Mormons by December of, of 31 Smith and Rigdon temporarily oh, paused the, the revision. Bill, I'm so sorry. Cause I think Please. part of my job here is to see if I can uh, disrupt your narrative. But Please. I just want to let everybody know that what we're leading up to is March, the night of March 24th, 1832, which is the night of the tarring of Joseph Smith. Just to give everybody an idea, that's what we're leading up to. Yep. Uh, by December 30 of 1831, Smith and Rigdon temporarily paused their revision of the Bible to start rebutting the accusations by Booth and Ryder. Rigdon had his own letters published in the Ohio Star pushing back against Booth and Ryder to discuss their charges in public. In one article, Rigdon purposely misspelled Ryder's name. <laughs> Sorry. Apparently to irritate him. Sounds like Tensions, something I would do. Yeah. Um, that whole Metcalf is butthead thing, right? Like that was, that was kind of done to irritate him if anybody ever found that. Uh, tensions increased on both sides. And again, these letters are reprinted in Eber D. Howe's Mormonism Unveiled. Also, you can look at the Ohio Star- Painesville, Ohio, 12th of January, 1832. Um, a short time before the tar and feathering attack, a hole was bored into the door of the house where Rigdon was staying and filled with black powder in an attempt to kill Rigdon. And we can see that. I'll skip here ahead a little bit. Did anybody touch it off? It is right here. What's that? Did anybody touch it off? Um, let's see what it says here. So it says... Uh, it sounds Mormons, like a second gunpowder plot. Mormons pulled up their stake and moved to Hiram. Smith and family took up their abode with Johnson. Rigdon in a log cabin opposite and the others in the vicinity. Here they had a revelation. It goes on there. I'll just skip down to the pertinent parts. This, uh, this, I can't, this soon raised opposition, which riped late, which uh, riped uh, into open war. Sorry about that. Someone bored a uh, auger hole into a log of the house in which Rigdon lived and filling it with powder, tried to blow it up. So it doesn't say whether it actually went off or not, but they apparently made a uh, attempt on Rigdon's life. And, and that seemed interesting. There was a couple of their notes here that I thought were cool. One of the disciples called on John Tilden to help tar and feather the Mormons who uh, Cooley told, yeah. Yeah, Cooley told him there were some Campbellites that deserved it as well as the Mormons. And if he would help him tar and feather them, he would help tar and feather the Mormons. They excused him, but the others went, took Smith and Rigdon out of bed and covered them with a coat of tar and feathers. The most unfortunate part of it was that the two of Smith's children were in bed with him sick with the measles, in the affray, they took cold and died. So you can even see the inaccuracy there because as we'll learn from the story, Julia Murdoch lives a full life, um, but the the uh, Murdoch boy does pass away from this whole incident. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to note, it does mention it, I think, in there, and it does mention it somewhere else. The The mob consisted of, consisted of around 10 to 11 men minimum, and there were some reports that said there were as many as 25 to 30 men involved in the uh, mob that does the tar and feathering attack um, 
based on eyewitness and secondhand accounts, such as newspapers and other places. Any thoughts on what contributed to these men being kind of riled up to set the to set the tone kind of for this thing to occur? Uh, just that historically speaking, the obvious plain as day overriding motive that the mob had as documented in newspapers and contemporary uh, statements at the time was that they were mad about the property that they yeah. saw Joseph Smith in his united order as a scheme to take property from other people. And I'm guessing, I am guessing that there were some people in there who were, who were especially concerned about John Johnson's farm because he's a believer and he's probably going to be uh, a likely person that is going to deed over his property to the United order. And I would expect here's, this is speculation on my part, but I would expect that people would have gone to him and tried to dissuade him from this crazy idea, from their point of view of deeding his property over to Joseph Smith and the nascent LDS church. Um, so if they did that, it was obviously not successful, which would have led them to resort to more extreme measures. Yeah. And so now we get to the actual event as described by Joseph Smith. And I'm wondering, RFM, if you wouldn't mind reading that account. I would not. I can do my best Joseph Smith impression. And just to note for people, this will be found in both Lucy Mack's history. She does kind of a copy and paste job. It was published originally in the Times and Seasons, volume five, page 611, and in the Millennial Star, volume 14, page 148. Okay. Once we get it there, I will be happy to read it. I mean, oh, a it's, couple of brief I, I thought you'd have it on you. It, we don't have a we don't have a slide with it. Do you have the outline nearby? Well, I bet I have it nearby. Uh, let me think here. Where the heck would it be? See, I just go for my outline. I don't bother myself. <laughs> now you're don't catching worry. me same, out. Same thing. No biggie. Oh, really? You don't look yeah, at my when, outline? When you write an outline, I look over it, and uh, and then I pick a few things I'm going to add, and then I go into the episode uh, maybe with an outline on a second monitor, but not really just kind of following along with you and poking in when I know I've got a data point that isn't in there. Well, that's pretty disrespectful, Bill. Yeah, well, you've sounded like you've the same thing. <laughs> okay, so this is the event as described as Joseph Smith, and I've got it here. Okay, on the 24th of March, by the way, that's a Saturday. The 25th will be a, a Sunday. I went back and I checked in the Wayback Machine. On the okay. 24th of March, 1832, the twins, before mentioned, which had been sick of the measles for some time, caused us, and I think that's Joseph Smith talking about himself and Emma, mm -hmm. caused us to be broken of our rest in taking care of them, especially my wife. In the evening, I told her she had better retire to rest with one of the children, and I would watch with the sicker child, which was the Murdoch boy. In the night, she told me I had better lie down on the trundle bed, and I did so and was soon after awakened by her screaming murder. When I found myself going out of the door in the hands of about a dozen men, some of whose hands were in my hair and some had hold of my shirt, drawers, and limbs. The foot of the trundle bed was towards the door, leaving only room enough for the door to swing. My wife heard a gentle tapping on the windows, which she then took no particular notice of but which was unquestionably designed for ascertaining whether we were all asleep. 
which I would presume would be something that Emma told him later. Mm -hmm. And soon after, the mob burst open the door and surrounded the bed in an instant. And as I said, the first I knew, the first I knew, I was going out of the door. So it's like he's asleep and he's awakened. And the first thing he knows is when he's going out of the door in the hands of an infuriated mob. I made a desperate struggle as I was forced out to extricate myself, but only cleared one leg with which I made a pass at one man and he fell on the doorsteps. And that passes, of course, kicking him right in the chops. I was immediately confined again, and they swore by God they would kill me if I did not be still, which quieted me. As they passed around the house with me, so they're going around outside the house with Joseph Smith in tow, the fellow that I kicked, whose last name was Waste, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. The fellow that I kicked came to me and thrust his hand into my face, all covered with blood, for I hit him on the nose. And by that, I think he means he kicked him on the nose. And with an exultant horse laugh, muttered, GG, I think that's God, God, God damn ye, I'll fix ye. And it's written in such a way that Joseph Smith is not writing God. He's writing G-E-E, comma, G-E-E, and then G-D-ye, I'll fix ye. So I'm trying to fill it in as I think he is actually trying to report it. They then seized me by the throat and held on till I lost my breath. After I came to, as they passed along with me, about 30 rods from the house, I saw Elder Rigdon stretched out on the ground, whither they had dragged him by the heels. I supposed he was dead. I began to plead with them, saying, You will have mercy and spare my life, I hope. To which they replied, God damn ye. Well, it's spelled out here. <laughs> Sorry, God damn ye. Call on your God for help. We'll show ye no mercy. And the people began to show themselves in every direction. One coming from the orchard had a plank, and I expected they would kill me and carry me off on a plank. They then turned to the right and went on about 30 rods farther, about 60 rods from the house, and about 30 from where I saw Elder Rigdon, into the meadow where they stopped, and one said, Simons, Simons, spelled with an I, by the way, <laughs> Simon, Simons, meaning, I suppose, Simons Rider, Pull up his drawers. Pull up his drawers. He will take cold. Another replied, ain't you going to kill him? Ain't you going to kill him? When a group of mobbers collected a little way off and said, Simon, Simons, come here. And Simons charged those who had hold of me to keep me from touching the ground, as they had done all the time, lest I should get a spring upon them. They went and held a council. And as I could occasionally overhear a word, I supposed it was to know whether, whether it was best to kill me. They returned after a while when I learned that they had concluded not to kill me, but pound and scratch me well, tear off my shirt and drawers, and leave me naked. One cried, Simon, Simons, where is the tar bucket? I don't know, answered one, where tis. So I don't know where tis, answered one. Eli's left it. And that name Eli will be important later. <laughs> Eli's left it. They ran back and fetched the bucket of tar. When one exclaimed with an oath, let us tar up his mouth. And they tried to force the tar, the tar paddle into my mouth. I twisted my head around so they could not. And they cried out, God damn ye, once again spelled out, hold up your head and let us give ye some tar. They then tried to force a vial into my mouth and broke it on, on my teeth. It says in my teeth, broke it in my teeth. 
All my clothes were torn off me except my shirt collar. And one man fell on me and scratched my body with his nails like a mad cat and then muttered out, God damn ye, that's the way the Holy Ghost falls on folks. They then left me and I attempted to rise but fell again. I pulled the tar away from my lips, etc., so that I could breathe more freely. And after a while, I began to recover and raised myself up when I saw two lights. I made my way toward one of them and found it was Father Johnson's. In other words, Father Johnson's house where he was staying. When I had come to the door, I was naked and the tar made me look as though I was covered with blood. And when my wife saw me, she thought I was all mashed to pieces and fainted. During the affray abroad, the sisters of the neighborhood had collected at my room. I called for a blanket. They threw me one and shut the door. I wrapped it around me and went in. In the meantime, Brother John Poorman heard an outcry across the cornfield and running that way met Father Johnson, who had been fastened in his house at the commencement of the assault by having his door barred by the mob. So the mob bars John Johnson's door so he can't get out and help. Uh, and Father Johnson, seizing a club, ran after the party that had Elder Rigdon and knocked one man and raised his club to level another, exclaiming, what are you doing here? When they left Elder Rigdon and turned upon Father Johnson, who, turning to run towards his own house, met Brother Poorman coming out of the cornfield, each supposing the other to be a mobber, an encounter ensued, and Poorman gave Johnson a severe blow on the left shoulder with a stick or stone, which brought him to the ground. Now notice all the details here. And also notice the fact that there is a Stygian darkness that you can't even tell somebody that you know that you're close to. It's so dark. You can't tell us from them. Right. That's how dark it is out there. Um, and sometimes I think in our modern society where almost everywhere you go, there's so much ambient light. It's difficult for us to understand how intense this blackness must have been. Corman ran immediately toward Father Johnson's house and arriving while I was waiting for the blanket exclaimed, I'm afraid I've killed him. Killed who? asked one when Poorman hastily related the circumstances of the encounter near the cornfield and went into the shed and hid himself. Father Johnson soon recovered so as to come to the house when the whole mystery was quickly solved concerning the difficulty between him and Poorman, who on learning the facts joyfully came from his hiding place. My friend spent the night in scraping and removing the tar and washing and cleansing my body so that by morning I was ready to be clothed again. This being Sabbath morning, the people assembled for meeting at the usual hour of worship. And among them came also the mobbers, viz, or i.e. as we would say today, i.e. Simon's writer, a Campbellite preacher and leader of the mob, one McClintic, that would be a last name, one McClintic, who had his hands in my hair, one streeter, was Jonathan Streeter there that night? Don't think so. Maybe it was a distant relative. One Streeter, son of a Campbellite minister, and Felatiah Allen, Esquire, who gave the mob a barrel of whiskey to raise their spirits, and many others. With my flesh all scarified and defaced, I preached to the congregation as usual, and in the afternoon of the same day, baptized three individuals. The next morning, I went to see Elder Rigdon and found him crazy and his head highly inflamed for they had dragged him by his heels and those two so high from the ground, his heels were so high from the ground that he could not raise his head from the rough frozen surface. 
which lacerated it exceedingly. And when he saw me, he called to his wife to bring him his razor. She asked him what he wanted of it. And he replied, to kill me. Sister Rigdon left the room and he asked me to bring his razor. Oh, excuse me. Sister Rigdon left the room and he asked me to bring his razor. I asked him what he wanted of it. And he replied he wanted to kill his wife. And he continued delirious some days. The feathers which were used with a tar on this occasion, the mob took out of Elder Rigdon's house. After they had seized him and dragged him out, one of the banditti returned to get some pillows. When the women shut him in and kept him a prisoner some time. During the mobbing, one of the twins contracted a severe cold and continued to grow worse till Friday and died. So that would be about six days later. The mobbers were composed of various religious parties, but mostly Campbellites, Methodists, and Baptists, who continued to molest and menace Father Johnson's house for a long time. Thank you very much. All right, so the next section here is details of the story. And we'll get, there's parts of this that we'll kind of draw out and we'll talk about. But there are details of the story as suggested by those involved, as well as additional research after the fact. Some of these came out in the narrative we just read. Others are added from additional sources. It is important to know that as I tried to chase down all of these data points, some of them I could find an original source for. Some of them are just quoted in later books, but I don't have access to that material to see what the original source was. And so I don't have a way to like substantiate that this person isn't adding conjecture as an author of a book. Um, so you got to kind of recognize that not all of these data points are, are, uh, can be shown in original sources, at least not with what I've got here or access to things on the internet. So a couple of other things. Joseph Smith was occupying a room of the house Brother Johnson was living in. We know that uh, at the same time as the Johnsons, it was a two-story building, had steps in the front. Uh, we had the picture of that up there earlier. Joseph was lying upon a trundle bed with one of the Murdoch children. It was the boy, I believe Joseph Murdoch. The mob rushed in, gathered up Joseph while in his bed, apparently separating him from the Murdoch boy in doing so, though Joseph makes no mention of that in his account took him out in his night clothes and carried him out onto the top of the steps. Joseph got a foot at liberty. By the way, you, you said waste. I don't know that it's actually the Warren Waste gentleman. He comes into the story where he's so strong and he thinks he can handle Joseph on his own, but he tells everybody to hold on to Joseph. Uh, and we'll get to that here in just a moment. Um, I think it's another gentleman who gets kicked in the nose. But Joseph got a foot at liberty and kicked one of the men, knocking him off the steps and there's some data point that says that the print of that person's head and shoulders were visible on the ground in the morning. Uh, here's this gentleman, Warren Waste, who was the strongest man in the Western Reserve, considered himself perfectly able to handle Joseph alone. But when they got hold of him, Waste cried out, do not let him touch the ground or he will run over the whole of us. Waste suggested in carrying him to cross his legs for they said that would make it easier for the prophet, but that was done in consequence of the severe pain it would give to the small of the back. And that's the way it was written in the source. But what they're basically saying is you'll see this later when we talk about some of the injuries these men took. But Warren Waste, who is supposed to be the strongest man uh, on the, what did they say there, on the Western Reserve, uh, ends up getting some sort of back injury in this whole event. 
that ends up plaguing him for the rest of his life. Um, so Wace suggested carrying his legs crossed uh, because it made it easier for the prophet, but it also relieved some of the pain he was having from whatever this was going on. Uh, the tar and feathering. Someone brought forward a bucket of hot tar, which they then smeared over Joseph's lacerated body at the same time trying to force the tar paddle into his mouth. He resisted. Um, we've got a note here that on Saturday, this is from the Observer and Telegraph. Oh, Bill, can uh, I interrupt here? Please. Because you told me something interesting that you discovered about the tar that they used. I had always assumed that tar was like the asphalt tar that we use on yeah. roads today. Yeah, it, it looks like beginning sometime in the 18th century, what ends up being used in these incidents is pine tar. And if anybody's familiar with baseball, for instance, George Brett, uh, putting pine tar on a baseball to make it curve or putting pine tar on a baseball bat. Uh, pine tar doesn't have to be at a high temperature to be uh, runny and sticky. And so uh, the, there's a higher likelihood that this would have been pine tar and not some sort of tar that needed to be heated up to a high temperature. And, and so there's a lot of times that when the story's told, it, it speaks of it being uh, like boiling hot tar put on him. And I think the reality is that that's not what we're dealing with. So is it around 140 degrees that you had mentioned about still hot. pine tar? Yeah, yeah it's still no longer in the park. But if you had asphalt, liquid asphalt put on you, then you would likely die. Yeah. And note too, this is in a time of cold season. The pine tar bucket is set on the ground for some time and they have some difficulty locating it for a moment. So the bucket would have had a little bit of time anyway to cool off from whatever temperature it was. Yeah, and that pine, that, um, I'm sorry, the wooden paddle and trying to put it in his mouth, they got yeah. it all over his mouth. But my understanding from my research is that the idea there is, is if you can get liquid pine tar into a person's esophagus, then when it solidifies, it will usually choke them to death. Yeah, and, and Joseph mentions being barely able to breathe and removing the ball of pine tar from his mouth. So, yes. Uh, in the Observer and Telegraph, local Ohio newspaper, it, under an uh, article titled Triumphs of the Mormon Faith, it says, on that Saturday night, March 24th, a number of persons, some say 25 or 30, Smith and Rigdon were sleeping. I'm sorry. Some say 25 or 30, disguised with colored faces, entered the rooms in Hiram, where the two Mormon leaders, Smith and Rigdon, were sleeping, and took them together with the pillows on which they slept carried them a short distance, and after besmearing their bodies with tar, applied the contents of the pillow to the same. Again, the article kind of implies they're in the same sleeping quarters, but again, they are in different homes uh, as far as we know when this event takes place. And we talked about the, the tar, and then we get to this part, the, the castration. There was a Dr. Dennison there who had been employed uh, by this mob. I don't mean employed by paid. He was just there present with them. He was invited to be part of the group. Uh, to perform uh, the surg uh, surgical operation of castrating uh, Joseph Smith, but he declined when the time came to operate. And you had done some research on castration. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on this particular component of the story? Well, the first thing to note, or that I noted, was that this is from a friendly source. This is Luke Johnson's recounting what happened that night. And we would assume that he was nearby since it's in the house where his father lives and the rest of his family, at least the ones who are there. 
So I don't know what his source of information is, but he would have been in the neighborhood at least. But it's a friendly, it's a friendly source. And therefore, when we have a friendly source, such as Luke Johnson, who becomes an apostle, um, at least I presume he was friendly when he wrote it. Um, he, um, the fact that there is a doctor mentioned with a scalpel come to do a castration is something that is unlikely to be um, invented by right. someone who is not friendly to right. Joseph Smith. So right. that's probably correct that that did happen. So I think we can put some reliance on that as um, something, unless, by the way, unless Luke Johnson invented it in order to show that Joseph Smith was miraculous, miraculously delivered from the results of that operation. Because the doctor begs off, right? Yeah, and I think there are other antagonist sources as well that mentions the doctor there too. So I, I, I think there's more than one source um, and I think it's pretty safe to say that this is a true component of the story. Yeah, I think so too. And so that's very interesting because that becomes an, an important element of the story that ends up being told about it. Uh, almost lost to history, or at least to many people's versions of history, is this entire documented motivation that uh, overwhelmed anything else, okay? Which is that Joseph Smith is out to steal property from people in Ohio. And just FYI, Dan Vogel's pointing out, he thinks Luke Johnson is alone in reporting the planned castration and Luke wasn't there. Okay. So, but, but still a friendly source, right, Dan? And well, I'll let him respond in the live chat unless he wants to call in. Um, but about castration, uh, mm -hmm. most people look at this and probably rightfully so in an American context, that castration would tend to indicate that there was a retribution being planned that was the result of some kind of sexual impropriety on the part of Joseph Smith. There are cultures that castrate men in order to humiliate them. And it's not related to any kind of sexual issue or sexual malfeasance. Uh, Ethiopians was one of the people or nations, cultures that came up as doing that. And there was a picture of an Italian soldier during a war uh, where they had done that. And I, I hope you don't have that. I hope you don't have that one to show to the people. But it does seem that within a U.S. Uh, context, it's generally something sexual. And of course, this is incited and led to the perhaps hasty conclusion that this is what was going on with the added component that the object of the sexual impropriety on the part of Joseph Smith was Mirinda Nancy Johnson. Okay. One thing I did find out was that Thomas Jefferson back in 1779. So this is around 50 years before this occurred. He had introduced, or he was the head of a committee in Virginia where they were uh, putting forth a bunch of different bills, making them into laws. And one of these laws says this, whoever shall be guilty of rape, polygamy, or sodomy, with man or woman shall be punished, if a man, by castration. Do you want to know what they did with the woman? If a woman, by cutting through the cartilage of her nose, a hole of one half diameter at the least. And I'm not sure what the mm -hmm. one half is. Maybe it's one half of the nose diameter at the least. And I thought, wow, Thomas Jefferson, that seems pretty harsh from the image I have of him. But a little more research revealed 
that actually what he was doing was he was, uh, they were passing laws that reduced the penalty for those kinds of things. Because prior to that, the penalty for rape, polygamy, or sodomy was death. So they're mm -hmm. actually, strange as it may sound, making the penalty less severe than it was originally. So it does appear, though, that in this um, framework of American history, at the time of Thomas Jefferson, and I'm going to speculate that it was probably similar in the time of Joseph Smith, there were different views among the populace as to what the appropriate penalty was for rape or polygamy or sodomy. But I don't know if the sodomy enters into here, but rape or polygamy. And that there, was, there were some parts of the populace who would have thought death was the appropriate punishment and others who would have thought castration was the appropriate punishment. Yeah. And as you and I were talking off the air, we were talking about like, is, you know, is castration a confident sign that Joseph had some sort of sexual misconduct as perceived by the mob? And it seems like based on your data and our conversation that often when we're talking about the legality, the government within a society, castration would be the legal punishment given uh, for somebody who is found guilty of some sort of a certain specific sexual misconduct, but that when the private, you know, when the when the when the citizens of uh, of a society act as vigilantes and offer up castration as their punishment out of a mob mentality, it becomes up in the air that at times it was done out of some sexual misconduct, and at times it was done to embarrass them. Um, and it could be due to multiple reasons, not necessarily something of a sexual nature. Right. And I would say I've listened to some apologists talk about this and, and say that the only motivation of the mob was all of this land stealing that they thought Joseph Smith was engaged in with the United Order. And that's certainly documented. I think it's safe to say that is the overriding reason for this mob attack. On the other hand, I think it would be a mistake to think that every member of a mob has the same animus against Joseph Smith. Yeah. And we'll see that play out. The next part here plays into that because they also tried to poison him. He was daubed with tar, feathered and choked, and aqua fortis was attempted to be poured into his mouth. Aqua fortis in the old chemistry is now called nitric acid. That's in Webster's 1828 American Dictionary. The liquid they poured into his mouth was so powerful that it killed the grass where some of it had been scattered on the ground. Joseph clenched his teeth hard to prevent them from poisoning him and assumedly in the process apparently chipped a tooth. As you're pointing out, um, when, when I listen to this telling and read the various accounts, it seems very disorganized. There are certain people who are planning to use the tar and feathers and they wonder where the bucket's at. There are people who are scratching Joseph Smith and clawing at him. There are folks who want to emasculate him or castrate him. There are folks who want to kill him. And it and, and each stage, uh, the doctor, um, when he goes to castrate, I think there's some sort of like ambiguity about whether everybody wants to do that. Certainly with the uh, murdering him, people want to bail out on that. Um, and don't really want to carry it that far, it seems. It seems as though there are multiple motives in the group. And so, as you point out, when a mob gathers, 
you know, unless they all met at the tavern the night before and sat around a table for three hours and made a written out list of all the things they were going to do, almost certainly people came into this with their own experience, their own motives and their own agenda of what they were going to do to Joseph and Sydney. And can I mention a couple things about Joseph Smith's account? Yeah. First off, it's extremely detailed. I mean, we heard all about this ancillary story about this guy named Poorman uh, attacking John Johnson by mistake, right? It was so dark. Yeah. It's extremely detailed. At no point does Joseph Smith mention a castration attempt. Now, whether that's because of reasons of his own or because he didn't remember it and it didn't, I don't know. I, I'm just observing that he does not mention that. Yeah. I also have to observe that after Joseph Smith in his account has the mob saying that they're not going to kill him, right? That they're just going to um, assault him savagely, but they're not going to kill him. After he has the mob saying that, he has them trying to kill him in two different ways, forcing uh, the tar paddle into his mouth and trying to force the vial mm. of the nitri was it nitric acid. Nitric acid. And you point out the next one, which is the poison. Yeah. Um, again, trying to kill him in two different ways. If it's an organized attack, you would think there'd just be one way you're going to plan on doing it. Yeah. And I don't mean to be irreverent here because I know we're talking about the prophet Joseph Smith, but it does remind me of that scene out of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> Do you remember that where they kept no, no. Biker, the biker gang? They grab Pee Wee and one of them says, I say we kill him. And another biker says, I say we hang him. Then we kill him. And then the third biker says, I say we stomp him. Then we tattoo him. And then we hang him. Then we kill him. And Joseph Smith said, I mean, Pee Wee says, I say we let him go. <laughs> and all the biker goes, all the bikers go, nah. <laughs> okay. So that's the um, the humorous interlude. But, but similar it seems as though people have a different agenda within this group. And I think you'll see that sort of play out. You also mentioned the darkness. I think that plays into this. Um, we talk about how, uh, I forget what the other brother's name was, but how he hits Lyman. John Johnson. What's that? Lyman? Oh, you uh, just said the other church brother, Poorman? The other church brother who hit uh, John Johnson's shoulder Poorman. with a rock or a stick. Yeah. And he hits the wrong guy. And... Um, uh, we'll see here, there was others that may have been assaulted as well. There was some genealogy page that said in the confusion, a Miss Vishiti Higley. Uh, also, it was worded in places as Vestali Higley, but I think Vishiti is the correct one, was dragged from her bed. The mistake was soon discovered. Miss Higley afterward married Peter Whitmer, one of the original witnesses to the golden plates on which the Mormon Bible was based. There seems to be a lot of confusion in the dark. They have a trouble finding the tar bucket, for instance. Yeah. Um, it, it seems as though the darkness is so severe that it's really hard to uh, have one hand knowing what the other hand is doing. Yes, and I'm I'm presuming that they're trying to not have a lot of light with them. They may have had a dark lantern with them. Uh, which is an, an expression for an old kind of lantern where it has sides. I mean, there's a lamp, there's a, 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 a candle or an oil wick inside, but it's solid on all sides. And then you can lift up just a little part of it. So it's more like a flashlight beam. So they may have had something like that, but they're trying to do this under the dark of night. They're not trying to reveal themselves. So they're probably not going to be carrying a lot of light with them. 
Yeah. And um, when Joseph comes to, he mentions only seeing two lights in the distance and making his way towards one of them, which also is an indication of how dark it was. Yeah. Yep. Uh, let's see here. So uh, Rigdon was also assaulted as we read from the story, or as you read from the story, Sidney Rigdon, who resided nearby, had been dragged by the heels and they had held his heels high enough in the ground that he couldn't keep his head lifted off the ground. It was again, March in Ohio. And, you know, for the most part, still a wintry night. Yes. And uh, uh, he had hit his head so much that he became somewhat delirious and suffered some from some mental instability, at least for some time after this incident. Yeah, Sydney should have been working his abs more. Yeah, 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 he should have. Um, he had dragged out by the heels of his... Uh, out by his heels out of his bed at the same time. And his body was stripped and a coat of tar and feathers applied the next morning. He was delirious, his head greatly inflamed and lacerated. We heard the story from you where he asked uh, his wife to get a razor to kill the prophet Joseph Smith. And then according to Joseph, of course, it's only those two in the room at the time. And Sydney, I don't think remembered any of it, but um, he tells Joseph to get me my razor so I can kill my wife. Let's see here. Some records indicated he was abused after Joseph. There was one account I read that implied that he was a, he was abused after Joseph, but by most accounts, it seems like he was taken out of his sleeping quarters first. Um, oh, and by the way, although it's a, a, a small possibility with it being so dark, is it possible that the mob plot that Sidney Rigdon was Joseph Smith at first? Yeah, I think if we're going to argue in favor of sexual impropriety on Joseph Smith's part, we have to come up with an explanation for why the mob uh, mistreated Sidney Rigdon as well. Right. And I think, as you're pointing out, one way to get around why they would have done this to Sidney is to recognize how much confusion there was in the dark of night and that possibly they thought that Joseph would have been staying in a different house than the Johnsons. And hence when they found somebody sleeping in a log cabin across the street, they assumed it was Joseph and took him out. But I think as we'll see that becomes maybe problematic. Right. I think that's a, just a very outside chance because even though it was very dark, the fact is, is that Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon are up to their necks in this controversy about yeah. property that's been going on in the public newspapers for months leading up to this attack. So yeah, the most rational decision is uh, conclusion is obviously that the attack was motivated by the belief that Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon with him were involved in stealing people's property. Yeah. I did find one photo of a man who was tarred and feathered and then had his photograph taken. And um, you can see it there. I, I don't know what to make of it because we don't, we can't really say like, this is exactly what Joseph Smith's tar and feathering would have looked like, or Sidney Rigdon's. We don't know how much tar was applied in both cases. We don't know how many feathers were on, but at least you kind of get a feel for what that might look like to somebody. Obviously, because they tried to put the paddle in Joseph Smith's mouth, we would assume he had some tar and maybe some feathers around his face as well. So there's that. Let me pull that back off. All right. Joseph, after being cleaned up the best he, that could be done, he preached a sermon the next morning and three people were baptized. Uh, Joseph found his way in from the light of the house, the mob having abandoned him. By the way, uh, Bill, disrupting again. Please. Um, that's an that's an incredible story about Joseph Smith after getting the, the caca kicked out of him the night before. Gets up and does the last thing that I think he would want to do, which is put on clothes, number one, because I imagine that's painful. 
he mentions it wasn't until the next morning he could put on clothes and he does it in order to go preach a sermon. And some of the members of the mob are there. You actually found evidence that, that story is true, didn't you? Yeah. So um, he preached a sermon the next morning and three people were baptized. That's that's what he claims and what other believers claim. Joseph found his way in from the light, the mob having abandoned him while he was engaged in getting off the tar by the application of grease soap and other materials. The point you're pointing to, which is Philemon Duzette, the father of our, this is the article that talked about it. Philemon Duzette, the father of our celebrated drummer. I assume it's like a revolutionary war drummer is his dad. And so they're basically saying like, this is the son of a famous war drummer that lives in the community. Does that make sense? Well, are they talking about the person who was baptized is the father of the drummer? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Maybe that's correct. Philemon Duzette, the father of our celebrated drummer, came there and seeing the prophet in this condition, took it as evidence of the truth of Mormonism and was baptized. Um, I wanted to show something else, too, which was interesting. So, yes, there's evidence that this is one of the three people uh, who joined the church. Um, but I wanted to see if I can find it here. Because I do want to say that, you know, as many things as I think that Joseph Smith was uh, egregiously mistaken about and things that he did, which I wholeheartedly disapprove of, and that's putting it mildly, this is pretty impressive to me, just that a person in his position would uh, be strong enough in his character to be able to get up after that and go and preach to a congregation. And it sounds like some of the members of the mob who were present were pretty impressed by it, too. Yeah, so this is uh, some family history of Philemon Duzette, 1782 to 1834. Is he on the left or the right in the picture? In that That's picture? just some video. Yeah, not neither one. Okay. But um, if I go all the way to the bottom here of his biography, the here's the most interesting thing I thought about his story. I tried to find out more about him. There's a little bit on him, but not much because Philemon joined Zion's camp. He joined the group of volunteers who followed the prophet Joseph Smith on the March for Zion's camp, they left Ohio 6th of May, 1834, and headed towards Missouri to aid the suffering of Latter-day Saints there. It was a grueling journey wrought with danger, hunger, and fatigue. Philemon did not return from this march. The family never saw him again, and we surmise that he died somewhere along the way. I think it's a strange story because you would think these guys would come back and go like, hey, just so you know, uh, we lost him. But it, the family seems to not know what happened to him. And the last they saw him was in Zion, going off to Zion's camp. That is so, odd, isn't it? But that's where he becomes lost to history. That's where he becomes lost to history is he participates in Zion's camp and never to be heard of again. Well, maybe he was one of those who died of cholera. Right. Correct. Yeah, that could have that could have been. Um anything's possible, I guess, at this point. We don't we don't know. Uh, the Murdoch twins, Julia and Joseph, the Murdoch boy died later, proposedly from the exposure to the cold during the tar and feathering event. We should recognize he had a severe case of the measles. That alone could be reason enough for why he passed away. Right. But there are there is additional info that we'll get to uh, in terms of this kid. Um these circumstances exposed the life of the child. The measles struck in and caused uh, his death. And the whole of this persecution was got up through the influence of those apostates. And it made it necessary to keep up a constant watch 
lest some violence should be repeated. That is obviously a copy and paste of one of the, the accounts. And then um, various books on Mormonism and other places had additional facts. They're calling them facts. I'm going to call it maybe facts, maybe conjecture. So uh, according to recorded accounts of the event, the mob broke down the front door, took Smith's oldest surviving adopted child from his arms. That doesn't make any sense because they're twins and they're the only two adopted children in the Smith's family at this point. Um, But there was that saying, basically they broke down the door and took Smith's oldest adopted child from his arms. Joseph doesn't say that. I couldn't find that in any source. The source they list here is simply books. The voice of one crying from the wilderness, Sidney Rigdon, religious reformer. And those are the two places it was at. Um, B, they dragged Smith from the room, leaving his exposed child on the trundle bed, enforcing Emma and the others from the house, the mob threatening her with rape and murder. That is in Luke Johnson's uh, History of Luke Johnson by himself, the Latter-day Saints millennial star also. Uh, By the way, we have had uh, Dan Vogel weigh in in the comment that Luke Johnson was not there. Yes. So again, if he's not present, then that also shades a little bit on his testimony not having been there. Um, Of course, obviously, the moment he comes home, his whole family is going to sit him down and for hours going to tell the story because it's it's the kind of story you sit around for hours and talk about. Um, And elaborate on. Yes. It was also in the uh, Latter-day Saints Millennial Star um, 26834, however that's organized. It also says here the child was knocked off the bed onto the floor into the doorway of the home as Smith was forcibly removed from his home. That's in Joseph Smith, the first Mormon, Mormon by Donna Hill, 1977. I don't know where she gets that from. Um, The child, then another one, the the child died from exposure. Many accounts say pneumonia five days after the event. Um, That was Mormon Enigma, Emma Hale Smith. Uh, prophet's wife, elect lady, polygamy's foe. And then a last one from the condition that the doctor said he developed in the night of the mob violence. I believe that's in Lucy Max Smith's history. I couldn't find it. Um, you know, I've got, I've got Fawn Brody's book, which we'll get to history of Joseph Smith by his mother. I looked all through the story of the tar and feathering and followed the next chapter after, but I couldn't find that quote. But when I did find the quote online, it attributed it to Lucy Mack's uh, history of, of her family. And then, um, of course, the Mormonism unveiled. All right. Anything on any of that data before we move into some of this uh, scandalous stuff that we're going to really hit hard on? Well, tell me about Miranda Nancy. Let's do it. And that is correct, right? It's Miranda Nancy. Miranda Nancy, Nancy Hyde. Right. Miranda Nancy Johnson. It is flipped in places in in different spots, but her name is Marinda Nancy Johnson, who then marries Orson Hyde. Before she marries. Yeah, sorry. Yes. And (laughs) Joseph. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just trying to in my head. I just know all this space I got to cover. I'm just trying to. I'm here to obstruct. Thank you, please. Um, All right. So we'll get to that which is coming up here really quick, but I got to get two more things. One is the injuries and fate of the assailants. Hmm. Again, Dan can point it out. Luke Johnson, not there, but Luke Johnson informed us that Warren waste was afterwards a cripple rendered. So by weakness in the small of the back, 
sounds like me on most mornings. And Dr. Dennison died in the Ohio penitentiary where he was incarcerated for procuring an abortion, which caused death. Luke's history does not mention the fate of Warren Waste, but does say that a Carnet Waste had an attack of the spinal affection and Dr. Dennison died in prison. He doesn't cite the offense. Uh, the mob tore out a patch of Joseph Smith's hair by the roots that never grew back. In fact, when they talked about him going out that morning to give the sermon, he combed it from the back to the front to cover up whatever spot of hair they had pulled out. That's that's like all the pictures or paintings I've seen of Joseph Smith. Yeah, I think from that point forward, he probably tries his best because it said it never grew back. So they probably tries to cover it up. Oh, the by the way, what do President Nelson and Joseph Smith have in common? They both have uh, what? They both talk with a whistle. A whistle, yeah. Or I can't even do it. But if you want to know what I'm talking about, just play any talk by President Nelson. Yeah, he at least over the last four or five years, he he has a uh, a whistle when he talks. Yeah, and, and that's talk just about, because of the tooth that broke when they were trying to stick the vial into his mouth. Right. So, and Joseph Smith, when he has the chip tooth, yes, he spoke for a he had a whistle in his speech the rest of his life. Uh, the mob injured Joseph Smith's side in such a way that it pained him the rest of his life. Uh, slowly, he re and this is after he was beat up. It said slowly he regained consciousness. He tried to sit up but couldn't. Unable to breathe, he pulled the tar from his mouth. After a time, he made his way home. Emma stood in the doorway. We talked about her fainting. Mm -hmm. Joseph asked for a blanket for cover and went inside by the fire. His friends spent the night peeling and scraping the tar from his body, mm -hmm. sometimes taking layers of skin with it. I'm sure. And then I thought this was an interesting thing. The alibi of Simon's writer. Um, let me find where I've got it up here. Yeah, that's going to be it. So uh, Susan Easton Black in a talk says this. She says, at Simon's Ryder's funeral in 1870, his son Hartwell Ryder spoke of his father and said all of these glowing things. Then he said, on the books of the Mormon church out in Utah, it says that Simon's Ryder led the tarring and feathering of Joseph Smith. Hartwell, his son, then said, I well remember that night. My father was extremely ill and spent the night in the outhouse. And when you and I had talked about this, we talked about because Susan Easton Black starts off her talk by basically saying that uh, a good criminal always has an alibi and, and a good alibi is a good alibi is an outhouse. And she That's tells a terrible this, alibi. Well, I know, right? Like, Not yeah, you okay. witness in there with you. Yeah. Yeah. He's sick out in the outhouse all night in the hey, middle folks, of March. I'm going to the outhouse tonight and don't expect me back till morning. Right, right. I had a but, client who had an alibi like that once. I don't think the jury bought that one. No, but I think and, Susan, I think and, Susan Easton Black is perhaps embellishing the story because I'll put it up on the screen here. Um, this was a second source and here's what it says. According to Simon's son, Hartwell, his father was not involved in the tarring and feathering, nor did he preach on the following Sunday in the South Schoolhouse on Ryder Road, by the way, Ryder Road, and glory in the belief that he had been an instrument of the Lord in driving the Mormons out of Hiram. Instead, Hartwell wrote his father was, quote, ill in bed at night, as cited, as cited in Doris Messenger Ryder, a history of Simon's Ryder, the Ohio Genealogical Society report. It feels as though. Oh, by Susan the way, Easton Bill, 
I just yeah. want to correct you. It says uh, Hartwell wrote his father was ill in bed at the time. Hartwell wrote his father was, quote, because it's got that quote around it, yeah. ill in bed at the time. And then as cited in Doris uh, yeah. Messenger writer. So I think Susan Easton Black is distorting the story and claiming that he was ill and spent the night in the outhouse when the actual quote is ill in bed at the time. I'm confused at this point, Bill, because didn't Simon's writer himself claim that he later claimed that he was in the mob and that they did it because of the property issue? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm only I'm only trying to point out that um, the the Susan Easton Black quote is inaccurate, mm. but we should not certainly believe Simon's son Hartwell at face value. No, apparently not. I mean, his son is trying to uh, vindicate his dad from the charge that he'd already confessed to. Yeah, and I'll just know we'll we'll probably say it again here later. But as I followed Simon's writer in his community through some newspaper clippings, he is serving is in uh, leadership of local councils and things uh, at his funeral. There were people that were making remarks about wishing they were half as good as Simon's writer. And um, I will, so it seems as though Simon's writer outside of this incident with Mormonism and in how Mormonism portrays him. And in this incident, I don't give him any, uh, any free pass at all. But outside of this incident, he seems to be a respectable citizen of his of his area. Or at least respected. Yeah. And um, Richard Bushman, there's a video of Bush, Bushman in uh, the Ohio church history area. And he's talking about the tar and feathering. And, and maybe we'll play it later. But he talks about the tar and feathering. And he talks about how Joseph really was attacked and assaulted, not by vigilantes who were had criminal behavior or histories to them, but rather by the most respectable people in these areas. Um, anyway. Can I just add one other thing that just occurred to me, which once Please. again goes to show how black and dark out it was this night. Joseph yeah. Smith never claims to recognize anybody by seeing their face. No, he hears Simon's name said, yes. but he doesn't know for sure it's him. Right. And here's an Eli's name said. He doesn't know anything else. He doesn't see anybody. Yeah, apparently. So now we get to now we get to the part about Clark Braden. And this is where all of the allegation comes into why the tar and feathering happened. That points to some sort of sexual misconduct on Joseph Smith's part. Clark Braden says that Hyde's brother, Eli, led the mob against Joseph in Hiram because he had been too intimate with his sister, Marinda who afterwards married Orson Hyde. So when it said Hyde's brother, he's talking about Miranda. Yeah. Um, uh, wait, hold on. Say that again. So when he says Hyde's brother, he's talking about Miranda's brother. He's talking about Miranda Hyde's brother. Yes. Yeah. She will become because, Miranda yes. Hyde in the 1840s. Miranda Johnson. Correct. So Miranda Nancy Johnson's brother, Eli, and he's saying her brother, Eli, led the mob against Joseph in Hiram because he had been too intimate with his sister, uh, Miranda. And when does Clark Braden say this, Mr. Real? Um, what is the year on that? 18... I think it's 1884. Yeah, I think you're right. 1884. I'll yep. double check. Did you already Please. find it? No, no. You can If you got it, that'd be great. Okay. I will look. 
Sorry, that's the sound of me scrolling. That's okay. I'm going to pull that off because I do have a document here yes, somewhere. That it's uh, Clark it. Braden. It's actually in a public discussion that doesn't have anything to do with the Elias Church. It's 1884. It's in St. Louis, where, of course, the Reorganites are close at hand. And it's a public discussion. This is a title of this volume in which this allegation first appears, apparently, as far as we can tell. Clark Braden, the guy who, for all I can tell, was not there, doesn't have anything to do with it, was not present, not a witness in any sense of the word to what happened on that night. In 1884, so this is more than 50 years later, it's in yeah. a public discussion of the issues between the reorganized church, right, and the Church of Christ, disciples. So yeah. they're having some kind of a, a debate or public discussion between the reorganites and the Church of Christ disciples, and he brings this up as an allegation against Joseph Smith for the first time that we are aware of that the reason that the castration attempt was made is because of sexual impropriety by Joseph Smith with Marinda Johnson, correct? Yeah, and, and this gets legs because Fawn Brody ends up using this quote and she doesn't exactly, we'll get here to the actual writing, what she says, but she doesn't exactly say that's absolutely what happened, but she does give it legs by not putting it down. And she also makes uh, a simple error that should have been fact-checked. That right, would she have repeats at least, an error. What's that? I just say she repeats an error. Yeah, she repeats an error that he did. And so yeah. this is the book out of No Man uh, Knows My History. Uh, by Fawn Brody, we can, oop, I thought maybe we had a zoom in. I think I've got it here. Give me one second. Mm -hmm. So this is page 119 in your edition. It's chapter eight, Temple Builder, I think is what it was called. And here it yeah. is where it's recounting the events of the night of March 24th. Do you want to read that? Yeah. She begins with, it is said that, which is a tell to a historian that she's not putting a lot of weight on it, but she is repeating it. It is said that Eli Johnson demanded that the prophet be castrated for he suspected Joseph Joseph of being too intimate with his sister. And here she says, Nancy Miranda, which I understand is a common mistake, but actually it is Miranda Nancy. That's one of the reasons I asked you. But the doctor going on with the quote from No Man Knows My History, but the doctor who had been persuaded to join the mob declined the responsibility at the last moment. And Johnson had to be content, and that would be Eli Johnson, had to be content with seeing the prophet beaten senseless. Now she gives a footnote asterisk there. And going down to the footnote, she cites for that proposition to Clark Braden and exactly what it was I just read to you with that long title and that public discussion from 1884. Yeah. And you were saying there was a, a mistake that she had repeated. Mr. Real, what was that? Yeah, the mistake that, and again, we'll cover this more in, in towards the end, but the first mistake is that there is no Eli Johnson as a brother to Miranda Nancy Hyde. Um, so if if you catch that, it automatically makes this story have much less weight to it. Now, what we'll find out is that Miranda Nancy Hyde does have an uncle named Eli, but there's also problems with him being kind of the, the connection on this as well. And we'll get to those. Um, but but yeah, if she would have been a little bit better historian in this one spot and went and looked up who the children were, it seems like it would have been uh, an obvious necessary ad 
uh, addition to her writing would have been like, hey, there is no Eli as a brother to Miranda Nancy Hyde. And that would have probably stopped this from being perpetuated. Right. So this 1884 uh, mention by Clark Braden appears to be the first time it was asserted that the mob acted, or at least some of them acted, because of Joseph being too intimate with Miranda Nancy. Yeah, and there was. I'll see if I can find it here. Uh, Let me go back to this. Um, If I scroll down here, there's also an allegation, I believe it's by Clark Braden again. Yes, Clark Braden here, quoting an unknown source. Uh, Clark Braden also said Joseph Smith's intimacy with Julia Murdoch, this would have been his foster uh, his foster daughter, right? Uh, his adopted daughter, I should say, caused trouble with his wife who sent the girl to her father. So Joseph Smith's intimacy with his adopted daughter, Julia Murdoch, caused trouble with his wife who sent the girl to her father. And I just want to be clear. I chase this one down too. And Julia has nothing but good things to say about the prophet Joseph Smith. And so this to me is also another tell, another piece of evidence that we shouldn't trust Clark Braden at face value. So there's yeah. that. And by, it's just totally untethered from any kind of a basis of knowledge that he would have regarding this. Now, uh, the reason I m- mentioned this is because I am, I know that Sean, uh, Sean, I know that Fawn Brody did a whole lot of research to do her, her, her book. And I'm expecting that, if she had in her research found an earlier recitation of this story or allegation, she would have cited to that instead of the 1884 late recollection. It's not even a recollection, late statement by Clark Braden. Yeah. And so while you and I are putting some skepticism on the Clark Braden quote, to do our due diligence, we wanted to chase this story as far as we could. And we by wanted way, to see Dan Vogel is weighing in. Can you see that comment on the screen? He also incorrectly assumed that Smith had married 16-year-old Mirinda as a plural wife in 1832. If you remember, I, I said the year 1832 because I had seen that year somewhere in my research, but it was 1842 or 1843, as we'll get to here in just a moment. Um, but yes, Clark Braden seems to be inaccurate, at least in places, and hence we should uh, have some skepticism about the quote regarding uh, Miranda Nancy Hyde and some skepticism on Fawn Brody's use of it without some deep clarification that would have shaded her own doubt on the, on the quote. Right. Yeah. And at this point, I think it's fair to conclude even provisionally that what Clark Braden was doing was he's looking at the, the facts of the situation and he's drawing an inference that other people have drawn, which is if there's a doctor there ready to castrate Joseph Smith, then he must've been doing something sexual that was wrong in the eyes of the mob. And that the most likely person he'd be doing it with was Miranda Nancy, who's a 16 year old who's in the house. We know from Joseph Smith's later history that he has a penchant for marrying or proposing marriage to young women who are in his house that he has this kind of exposure to. And finally, in 1842, or three, as you say, Joseph Smith does end up marrying this girl 10 years later as one of his girl wives. And that is the real evidence for Joseph Smith having 
a sexual dalliance or affair or whatever you want to call it with Miranda Nancy Johnson. I think it's yeah. a purely circumstantial case. It might rise to the level of probable cause if you got a re really uh, generous judge, but I don't see that rising anywhere near even 50% to convince me that that's what was going on. Correct. Um, and just to say a couple of other little facts, and then we can move along from this and maybe just kind of talk about it at seeing the forest from the trees. Um, but Thomas Bullock does list the marriage of Joseph Smith to Miranda Nancy Johnson uh, Hyde in April of 42. This is in a July 14th, 1843 entry uh, in Joseph Smith's journal. It's in the handwriting of Thomas Bullock. And it One says, quote, it says April 42, Miranda Johnson to Joseph Smith. Um, Brian Hales uh, comments on that. He also makes mention that there is a second date. If it's in 1842, by the way, Orson Hyde is on his mission. To Jerusalem to dedicate the Holy Land. Yep. But Miranda personally testified concerning a sealing through a signed affidavit uh, that was dated May of 1843. And if that's true, then Orson Hyde is back in town. Um, so there is, it's, I know in critical circles, we constantly tell the story about how or how Joseph Smith marries, sends men on missions and then marries their wives. And the only real example I'm aware of is Orson Hyde. And the reality is that the data, Oh, sorry. And the data on Orson Hyde anyway, is that it is sort of a crapshoot on whether it was in 42 or whether it's in 43. There's two pretty credible sources that disagree with each other and where she testifies herself, which in a courtroom would probably hold more weight. Um, she says it's in 43 and uh, Bullock, when he writes 42, he's writing it in 1843, which also lends some sort of credibility to him. Right. Cause when Miranda writes this, I mean, that affidavit that's 50 years later, how much later yeah. is it? Uh, I, yeah, I think it is. Um, I don't have the the source of it here, but I assume it's part of that lot Temple case. Lot case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's like 50 years later. So, I mean, she could be off a year easily. I, Joseph Smith had similar difficulties in dating the year of his first vision, I think. Yeah, there were also other or sources. Excuse me, go ahead. Yeah, there were other sources too. John D. Lee, for instance, said that Hyde's wife, with his consent, was sealed to Joseph for an eternal state. And there was another source that said, um, oh, it was it was that when uh, Orson Hyde apostatized from the church that there was an agreement for him to get back into the church to give Joseph Smith his money and his wife. So while that certainly sounds shady, there's at least recognition that Orson Hyde is there and giving consent. And so I also would want to be really careful as if we're going to be critical of Mormonism of imposing that Orson Hyde was on his mission when this marriage took place, at least recognize that it's, that's possibly true, but that we ought to probably stop way shy of imposing that as a truth. Right. I mean, I would tend to go with an account that was written a year after the event yeah. by one of Joseph Smith's scribes, which yeah. is what Bullock was. But again, in a court case, we would also have these other folks' testimony yes. that they were aware that Hyde had consented, and so it really gets messy. 
Yeah. And then we have the opportunity to cross-examine them and find out what their basis of knowledge is. And by the way, you made this point this week. I don't know if you remember this, but you made the point about the Partridge sisters. Do you remember this? Yeah. Lori yeah, Tracy. Would you, would you? No, no. But would you, do you, if you remember it, would you make mention of it? Because I think it is at least of note. Oh, right. Well, the idea would be, I'm sorry. I've been thinking about this too much over the past week. And I yeah, know you it's have a lot of stuff. Know. But yeah, if, if Joseph Smith were married to Miranda back in 1832, right? 42. Or 32, no, sure. 32. As yep. part of this plural marriage thing, right? Mm -hmm. This is going on super early, according to that theory. Then why would he marry her again in 1842 or three, as you pointed out? And the thing that came to my mind immediately was, well, it's not like it's without precedent. It's not the I mean, first time he's done this, right? Right. He married the, the Partridge sisters and uh, then remarried him again later as a sham wedding yeah. in order to satisfy Emma. The first marriage in private, the second one in public. Well, sort at least of. in front of Emma. Sort of. Yeah. So that's possible, but I don't I don't think the evidence supports that either. Yeah. Brian Hales says the details of the relationship between Miranda and the prophet will probably never be known. If Miranda had chosen Joseph as her eternal husband, she apparently changed her mind because she chose to be sealed to her legal husband, Orson Hyde, in the Nauvoo Temple on January 11th, 1846. What Hales is this also, that Brian Hales is talking about if Miranda chose? Yeah, and, and Brian, by the way, I think Brian does actually, <laughs> I think Brian does a really good job on this stuff when I was yes. looking at his work on this particular issue. There's a certain um, slant to the way he presents things, though. You, totally. Uh, Hales also said Miranda Nancy Johnson relocated to Salt Lake City in 1852, later divorced Orson Hyde and was resealed by proxy to Joseph Smith. She died in 1886, having kept the faith in the church. And then there's one other source I was pointing to just a few minutes ago, William Hall. Hall claims Orson Hyde agreed to give Joseph all his money and his wife in order to be permitted back into the church after his apostasy. And really it's this whole messy relationship with Miranda Nancy Hyde that gives us even the slightest bit of reason to go back to this tar and feathering event and go, maybe there is something with this Eli Maybe we don't quite have it right. Maybe it's the uncle. Maybe something else is going on. Um, the other thing about Nancy and marrying her 10 years later for, on Joseph Smith's part is I think it would be more significant if he only married one other wife other than Emma. But he's chasing skirts all over Nauvoo. There's 33, which is yeah. a conservative, conservative estimate of the women he married. So at some point, you've got to think, well, he's going to, Miranda's number is going to come up. Yeah. Yep. Um, Arthur Deming, third hand from Reverend Whitney, Newell K. Whitney's brother, who is hostile to the church. Several of Johnson's sons were of the mob party. They were angry because their father urged, was urged by Joe and Rigdon to let them have his property. He finally did give them some of it and moved to Kirtland and kept tavern and his son, Luke, became one of the first Mormon 12 apostles. So Arthur Deming, again, he's getting it from somebody else, um, third hand from Reverend Whitney. But he mentions that there were several members of the Johnson sons in the family who were of that party of the mob and that they were angry because of this whole property, giving it over to the church or Joseph Smith and Rigdon. So I thought that was interesting. Um, Marinda Nancy Johnson, here's her quote. Here I feel like bearing my testimony that during the whole year that Joseph was an inmate at my father's house, I never 
saw aught in his daily life or conversation to make me doubt his divine mission. So if we take Nancy at face value, Miranda, I should say, at face value, then we should recognize that she is saying that Joseph Smith never did anything inappropriate with her or in, with anybody else in the way. home. I don't read it that way. Really? What do you hear? What do you read? Better affidavit from much later. Again, I don't, I don't have the source for this. It was in a quote on a page that didn't show sources. And the only reason I say that is because if she ends up marrying Joseph Smith and then being sealed to him posthumously uh, after he, his death, obviously in the temple, like you mentioned, from that perspective, from a later perspective, why would you think there was anything inappropriate about it? Because him approaching her was per, was God's will. Right. Correct. So I don't see that as exonerating Joseph, but I also don't see the evidence really there that he did it. Yep. Van Wagner, uh, perhaps quoting Marvin Hill. That was one of my first books I read was Marvin Hill uh, on Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also had the Van Wagner book. I don't know if I have it anymore. I think I threw it away in one of those moments where I wanted to be an uber righteous Mormon and I got rid oh. of all my anti-material. Okay. So I, I need to order it again, I think. How did but that work Van, out for you? Uh, yeah, it didn't go good. Did <laughs> uh, Van Wagner, perhaps quoting Marvin Hill, that an incident between Smith and uh, Nancy Johnson's what it says here, but Miranda Nancy Johnson precipitated the mobbing is unlikely. Now, Remember, Van Wagner is a critical source. Right. Uh, he he's a very good historian, but he writes from a critical perspective. Yeah, he's not going to um, be covering for Joseph Smith. Correct. So uh, is unlikely. Sidney Rigdon was attacked just as viciously. So, I'm, sorry, so, I'm sorry. I'm uh, sorry. So Van Wagner says he thinks it's unlikely that Joseph Smith was doing inappropriate. Inappropriate with Nancy. Miranda Miranda Nancy Johnson. Yeah. Miranda Nancy. Yeah. Correct. Rigdon was attacked just as viciously by the group as was Smith and the leader of the mob, Simon's writer later said that the attack occurred because members of the mob had found some documents that led them to believe the horrid fact that a plot was laid to take their property from them and place it under the control of Smith. That is mentioned in Marvin Hill, 1977, page 146. We've already mentioned that John Johnson had no son. Eli is by the way. I I just want to say, I think everybody knows this. Yeah, that's what Joseph Smith was doing. If you take out the horrid plot part, yeah, that's what he was doing as part of the United Order. Yeah, whether you think it came from God or not, the taking of the member's property and putting it in the hands of Joseph Smith or the church is an absolute truth. Right, and taking is probably the wrong verb. Consecrating? Well, they are volunteering to consecrate it to him. United Order. The revelation, yes but he's not actually taking it like against their will. No. Uh, God wants you to give it to me. Now, will you be righteous and do so? Right. That's not taking. Yeah. Uh, So he has no son, Eli. John Johnson has no son, Eli. His only sons were John Jr., Luke, Olmstead, and Lyman. Um, It is important to note that Willard Richards says in the manuscript history of the church that the apostate Ezra Booth, Simon's writer, Eli Johnson, Edward Johnson, and John Johnson Jr. had apostatized. And then he also says, um, he also mentions the same account from Joseph, Simon, Simon's, where's the tar bucket? I don't know, answered one, where tis, Eli's left it. Um, It is important to note, as we pointed out, Eli was an actual name of one of the uncles Eli was an uncle, a brother to uh, Miranda Nancy Johnson Hyde Smith's father, John. 
son of Israel Johnson. Um, this is what Fair Mormon says about that Eli Johnson. I Eli, don't know how much Eli was Miranda's dad's brother. Miranda's dad's brother. Thank you. Um, Fair Mormon says this. He was partially blonde or blind. Sorry, he was partially blind, fond of drink, disgruntled the village talebearer, and lived in outhouses. He is known to have lived his last 50 years in Battleboro, New Hampshire, 1809-1859, posing further difficulty for him being in Ohio for long and being Clark Braden's source. He would have been around 50 when Joseph was tarred and feathered and not easily mistaken for Miranda's brother. So there's that. Um, Luke Johnson. By the way, I was talking to you during this week when we were sharing kind of research I pointed out to you that Luke Johnson refers to Eli Johnson, but does it in such a way that he that you wouldn't assume they're related. And here's the quote. Luke Johnson says, persons identified as being part of this attack besides Mason and Dr. Dennison include Simon's writer, Warren Waste, Jacob Scott, a man named Fuller, and Eli Johnson. Many of these men had recently apostatized from the church. You would think if Luke Johnson's mentioning his uncle, that he would take just a moment and designate such in his, in his comment. Right. But he doesn't. And to me that stands out. Like that seems a little odd unless for whatever reason, he doesn't want people to know they're related, which also is possible. Except everybody around there did. They already knew that I would expect. I also thought that maybe Eli was short for Lyman because we were talking about, um, you know, Dan Vogel pointed out that Lyman wasn't there. Bill um, has been running down every woodchuck. Every possible thing. I thought maybe Eli is is similar to Lie. So instead of, so you have Lyman, you would call him Lie, but someone else hearing that might refer later to it being Eli. Right. So, but Lyman also has an alibi. He was on an Eastern mission for much of 1832, and he was with Orson Pratt continuously from February 3rd to November 8th. Plus, Lyman was a believer. Plus, Lyman was a believer. All right. Uh, any thoughts there? And then I want to wrap up with a conclusion. We can take a couple phone calls, and I'm going to go take a take a shower and hit the bed because it's it's I'm I'm exhausted. You should go out uh, that hot tub you have in back. Maybe I'll do that instead. Yeah, that's what I would do. Okay, it is, it's Southern Utah, but it is a nice night tonight. I think it's maybe 80, 82 degrees oh, or yeah. so. That hot tub right next to your outhouse. Right next to my outhouse. You can spend the night in the hot tub. Yeah, I'll be ill. <laughs> um, any other thoughts there before we give a conclusion? No, no. Okay. You've done a great job, I think. And Let Dan me Vogel give... just said that you've done a great job running this down. So that is praise from Caesar. Good, good. There are four things I want to note in the conclusion. While there is some data lending credibility to the claim of sexual misconduct being at least part of the motive of the 24th of March, 1832, when we get to the end, I want you to share from a legal standpoint, evidence for, evidence against, and you can give your concluding thoughts, Um, such as the attempted castration, the later allegations, the sealing marriage of Smith to Miranda Nancy Hyde. Me personally, I think this is weak at best and is clouded by the errors created by Fawn Brody and perpetuated, I should say uh, Clark Braden and perpetuated by Fawn Brody and also perpetuated by all of us as critics of Mormonism who are so quick to repeat this story. Um, to see misconduct on the part of Mormon leaders at every turn, number one. Number two, there may have been multiple motives of the mob 
but it seems the clearest explanation for the events of that night can be best understood by the words of Simon, Simon's writer himself. Simon's writer later defended his actions against Smith and the Mormons. Remember, he goes right against his son's uh, funeral conversation, huh? Explaining that the attack was not a manifestation of religious intolerance. In fact, the people of Hiram were liberal and disposed to turn out and hear the Mormons and other religions. The attacks, writer argued, came in response to the horrid fact that a plot was laid to take their property from them and place it under the under control of the prophet Joseph Smith. And by the way, that was a quote. Ryder defended his actions and was pleased with the result of the violence. This had the desired effect, he said, which was to get rid of them. They soon left for Kirtland, being the Mormons. This was Simon's writer in a letter to A.S. Hayden, 1st of February, 1868. And this is uh, in Amos Sutton Hayden, Early History of Disciples in the Western Reserve. Number th- So we should just take him at face value and believe that that's the reason. Number three. Oh, well, I, I would say yes, but because it's completely documented for months up to the attack in publications that we know what was said. We know what the, the huge controversy was about. And we have no doubt that that was a huge problem with Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith. And that Sidney Rigdon's calling him out saying, come and debate me and let's talk about this. Let's hash it out. And they refuse to. So Sidney Rigdon is, is, is mocking them for not coming out to this debate. And things are just getting worse and worse. And then finally, it explodes on March 24th of 1832. So we know that that is a reason. We know yeah. that that is a reason from contemporary documents, which is buttressed and corroborated by Simon Ryder's later uh, about 30 years later, probably about three years before he passes away or so, his his uh, his statement, his confession, his admission that that's what it was about. Yeah, it concludes with a bucket of pitch and, a, and pillows of feathers, right? Uh, number three, hence we, myself included, need to quit perpetuating the story about Eli and his sister, Miranda Nancy Hyde or Miranda Nancy Johnson, and focused on the thousand of other, sorry, the thousand other legitimate places to raise criticism and expose problematic history. And then my last thing I want to say, um, this was a, from a thesis, tarred and feathered, Mormons, Memory, and Ritual Violence by John Kimball Alexander. And here's what he says. The motives of the mob are best understood as a public manifestation of the personal feud between Smith and Rigdon and Ryder and Booth. When Booth and Ryder left Mormonism, they seemed to believe their attacks against Smith and Rigdon would go unchallenged and result in the fall of Mormonism. One man wrote that Booth gave Mormons such a coloring or appearance of falsehood that public feeling was that Mormonism was overthrown. Yet Smith and Rigdon launched a campaign against Booth and Ryder that rebuffed their accusations and discredited both men. Particularly Ryder, the likely organizer and leader of the mob, seemed determined to pursue a personal vendetta against Smith and Rigdon. Ryder claimed that the central factor was property, especially the perceived loss of property among Smith's followers and the corresponding accumulation of property in Smith's hands. The doctrine of Mormonism that would come to be called the law of consecration required members to deed their property to the church to be used collectively for the benefit of all Mormons under the oversight of Mormon leaders. Individual Mormons would then receive land back from the church as stewardships from which they were to provide for their families and then distribute any excess for the care of the poor. 
This redistribution of property and wealth caused a fury among some Mormons who viewed private property ownership as a central component of their broader American identity. Ryder and Booth's roar of words against Smith and Rigdon combined with charges of property aggrandizement against Smith generated an atmosphere wherein generally peaceful Ohioans resorted to violence in an effort to protect both reputation and property. Any concluding thoughts from you, my friend? Oh, you're muted. I thought I was going to get through an entire episode without that. (laughs) No, my understanding is that that's one of the main reasons that Oliver Cowdery disassociated himself with the church was over his property in Missouri. And that Joseph Smith was saying, you don't get to sell your property because we need that for Zion. And Oliver's going, yeah, but we've been kicked out. And Joseph Smith is saying, it doesn't matter. And Oliver Cowdery saying, I don't care what you say, I'm selling my property. And so property issues, I, that's one of the main things this uh, country was founded on, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or property. I think that was one of the versions. Anyway, property rights, very, very important to early Americans, still important to Americans today, though much more, I think, important at that time and people would part from their profits over that uh, issue including Oliver Cowdery though there was also the Fanny Alger uh, situation but having said all of that I think that the evidence in this case that Joseph Smith was having um, sexual relations or whatever with Nancy Miranda Nancy Johnson is circumstantial at best and I said before maybe probable cause that's how much you need to get a search warrant that's it's an ambiguous phrase right it's an ambiguous phrase where a reasonable person would think that yeah something something wrong's going on there but for me and different people view evidence differently by the way and that's important to recognize that's why there's 12 people on a jury and sometimes they hang up because people watching the same evidence take it differently or weigh it differently But for me, this doesn't even rise to the level of uh, even close to 50% that that's the case, especially when we know that the overriding reason is documented and it's about property. Now, once again, that doesn't mean that the mob has to all be motivated by the same reason. And maybe somebody's out there, maybe somebody out there is named Eli, and maybe Eli is related to Miranda Nancy, and he thinks that uh, something bad's been going on, so... They bring along this doctor to do the castration on Joseph Smith. But it's all very circumstantial. It doesn't really amount to anything. We don't have anybody at the time saying that this is what was going on or any evidence that that was going on. It's something it's because of this doctor, by the way, I was reading the new book on masonry by Cheryl Bruno uh, last night. I'm not too far into it. I'm around 40 pages into it, but I did notice an interesting thing because we've been talking about this and the doctor's name is Dr. Dennison, right? That they bring along. Well, yeah. guess who the name of the doctor was who assisted in Joseph Smith's birth. Dennison. Dr. Dennison. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, so. yeah, maybe that's why he bailed. He noticed like the, uh, the circumcision scar or something, you know? Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, it was the same doctor actually. And, uh, he had a habit of putting his initials and he noticed him when he when he went to castrate Joseph Smith. Exactly. D yeah. D Dr. Dennison. He said, Oh, I can't do this. I, I deliver this kid. Right okay. there on the frenulum. I think that's probably a, a coincidence. Sometimes, and this is very important to recognize. <laughs> what did you just say? I said, right there on the frenulum. Gesundheit. <laughs> so 
But honestly, this uh, is something that's very hard to understand sometimes, but really sometimes a coincidence is just a coincidence. Okay. Um, I know we got to get to phone calls, but it reminds me of one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes stories. And I can't remember which one it is. It might be, um, oh, the empty room or something like that, where Sherlock Holmes proclaims, I don't believe in coincidences or I don't believe in coincidence. It's almost a favorite or famous expression by Sherlock Holmes. And I remember the expression and then I'm reading the story. And finally, I get to the end of the story. I think about it and say, wait a second. This whole story is based on a coincidence. It's a total coincidence that it happens the way it does. And so it's almost, it's undermining, the story is undermining the hero, Sherlock Holmes, when he says at the beginning, I don't believe in coincidence at the beginning of a story where it's a coincidence and coincidences do happen. This is obviously one of them. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I mean, there's a remote chance it could be the same guy, but it's pretty unlikely. Yeah, I wanted to throw just a couple little things here. There is one phone call in the queue. If people do want to call, it's 662-667-6667 or 662-MORMONS. Uh, yeah, we could do the old fist, but that's not it anymore. So People miss that. The yeah, yeah, they, they do. Uh, I, I, I can understand, again, to go tar and feather someone because of things that built up originating with your name being spelt wrong is such an odd thing to me. I'm sure Simon's writer, and because he had this reason for the property, and I'm assuming he had other reasons as well, and the name being misspelled is only one of them, the church likes to minimize these stories to silly things. And generally, human beings are much more complex. But I also want to note, we pointed out, his, his name was misspelled everywhere. Uh, on this here is one of the sources that I was using tonight. Um, it got to the end here. And President Simon's writer, treasurer. <laughs> and the R-I-D-E-R. Yeah. So he he probably was annoyed significantly. Well, he's, got, he's got this name. His, his parents saddled him with this name. Writer's tough enough, but now it's going to be Simon's writer with a Y. Yeah. It's begging to be misspelled. And then the other thing I wanted to say was that I'm always trying to point at how the apologists add more allowances and conjecture. And that's often done with things like, but maybe, what if? Maybe someday a thing will come forward and it will show that this thing is true. And I want to notice that we we always want to put that down. That's not rational thinking when somebody goes like, it's, it's not here at the moment, but maybe it'll show up at some point. And notice that the only way you can make this story work uh, with it being some sort of sexual misconduct. Again, Joseph Smith gave plenty of reasons for why we might start to believe that idea. You know, all of the polygamy, all the scandal, all of the inappropriateness with uh, young girls such as Lucy Walker, which does have a father being sent on a mission and a woman, you know, a, daughter, a girl being brought into the home, being treated as a daughter and then being approached in uh, in intimate ways. So there are plenty of stories that give us reason to doubt that uh, Joseph was appropriate and that something inappropriate may have led to this event happening. But anytime we as the critic are going to go, maybe, what if, if we just keep looking, it's got to be there. Notice we're doing the same thing the apologists do, and we have to let that style of argumentation go. I think it's very self-aware of you, Bill. Bravo. I mean Good. that. Good. Uh, all right. Let's grab a call here. This looks like it's Ezra. Let's see if I can get Ezra to be on. Ezra, are you there? Uh, all right. Let's grab a call here. Hello. Is that Ezra Pound calling from the 1830s? Ezra. 
I can I can hear some noise oh, on his end, but so I know I've got the call going fine on my end. I think hello? he might have stepped away from his. Oh, I hear uh, him. I hear hello. It sounds very distant. Can you be really loud? Can you either take yourself off speaker, or is there anything you can do to increase the sound? Hello. Yep. I've heard hello a few times. I can't hear anything on my end. You I can can't hear, hear now. anything on your end. Oh, I can hear. There now. you go. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. Please talk really loud, though. We can barely hear you. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, no, I just I wanted to just comment on um, just I I like I've I thought a lot about the church and how rare it is for church leaders to admit when they're wrong, or for the church as an institution to admit that it has made a mistake with its history or has not given all the facts. And um, generally speaking, I think uh, for institutions, like, you know, you can trust someone when they tell you um, that they don't have all the information or that they don't have the correct information or that they admit that they've, you know, made mistakes with, with their conclusions and things like that. And I just wanted to point that out and, and how, how much I, I appreciate and I think it's it's a it's a good thing that you guys um, you know are putting that message across and I think that really differentiates you from from how the church treats itself and how the church views itself as infallible and never you know capable of, of error in a lot of ways um, so yeah I just wanted to, to put that out there thanks appreciate thank that. you Ezra I appreciate that too I will tell you I can't speak for Bill but when he announced the subject, I thought we were going to dig deep into it and uncover the evidence that showed that this story about Joseph Smith having an affair with Miranda Nancy was actually true. And much to my surprise, it wasn't there. So we wanted to, as you say, try do our best to present all the evidence, regardless of whether it supports a it's not a faith-promoting rumor. What's the opposite of a faith-promoting rumor, Bill? Faith-demoting rumor. A faith-demoting rumor. That's mm -hmm. it. Right. And, and I'll say RFM. Yeah, no, no. I, I oh, go ahead. Go ahead, caller. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I, I completely agree. And just real quickly, um, uh, earlier this year, I went to a, another Christian church, and a lot of what they talked about, this was in Canada, so one of the big issues in Canada is, you know, the... In, treatment of indigenous children and, and residential schools. And for a good part of the, of the sermon, the, the pastor was talking about how, you know, the church, their church had been implicated and how they had been involved in how it was their responsibility to make reparations. Um, so that's, that's just an example of when an institution takes responsibility and, and admits that it's wrong. And I've just never seen that from the church and it's just such a rare thing. Um, how old are you, Ezra? Yeah, I think it just goes to what you guys Ezra, how old are you? I'm 28. Okay, well, you're too old. You're probably never going to live to see the day when the church does that. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, one can hope, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And we will try here at Mormonism Live to set a good example for the church leaders to emulate. Thanks, Ezra. No, that's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Somebody uh, asked me the other day, RFM, if we would ever live to see the church apologize. And I asked the person if they were a smoker. <laughs> Without those actuarial tables.
Yeah. I'll just know, like you and I talked off the record all through the week. I never sensed any resistance on your part. And I don't think you would have felt anything on mine that we just want to go where the data went. We wanted to tackle this issue wherever it went to. And I really am very comfortable at this point in my life of going like, you know what? I wish there was something bigger here. There's just not. There's there's not anything to hold on to that would point to that. And we ought to stick to the facts. I agree. And just as a lawyer or uh, in basic debate, if you have five good arguments on a proposition and one weak one, get rid of the weak one. Get rid of it. You stick with your strong arguments because as soon as you include a weak argument, what the opposition does is they focus on the one weak argument, they tear it to shreds, and they use it to suggest that all the rest of your arguments are equally as weak. And in Mormonism, there is plenty of good critical arguments to put at the top and just let this one slide off the table. Yeah, but we've talked to also before off the record and maybe on the record too, about why it is very difficult for us to lose a debate. And the reason it's difficult for us to lose a debate isn't because we're always right about everything. It's because if we find out that we are not right, we change our position. Yeah. 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 Notice on every issue that the apologists have to have a faithful outcome and they do everything they can to have every issue be that. And never can you get an apologist to go like, Hey, this actually looks stronger in favor of the critic on this one. Not once. Oh, well, I've been watching Patrick Mason on Mormon stories recently, and I think he does do that. So he may be an exception to the rule you're proposing. I'm, yeah. I'm speaking a fair Mormon. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not the right. neo-apologist, the, um, what would you call them? The, the old pa- world apologist. The paleo apologist. Pa- <laughs> I like it. There, there is no other phone call in the queue. So if you're Are okay, you we me? can end it. Yeah, no, it's, I think people, people are drowning in this data. Maybe well, there's a ton of stuff. Asleep. Yeah. So anyway, uh, but there is no other calls in the queue. So if, if we want, we can end the show and uh, folks can move on with the rest of their evening. All right. Very good. Bill, I want to applaud you publicly. You've done a great job with all this uh, evidence and accumulating it and then systematizing it and then presenting it. I know you have been working for hours and hours and hours doing this, including a lot today yeah, and, and looking things up. And not everything that he found has been presented. And I only say that because it's irrelevant stuff, not because we're hiding anything. But right. there's a whole lot of stuff. And that you presented an awful lot of it. I think the lion's share of it tonight. Yeah. Well, thank you. And uh, I think there was a lot of calls this week between the two of us. And I think it was a great team job. By the so, way, Jim uh, Camp is asking a question. Is there a list of the people in the mob? And none that I know of. I think there's a few people that uh, like Simon's writer was there. He admitted to being there in addition to Joseph Smith hearing his name called, which I'm guessing was kind of an unusual name in the community. And according to Dan Vogel, Simon's writer had the property that was immediately adjacent. And I think he said South of the Johnson farm. So he was close by. There was just that quote from Luke Johnson that said, um, Mason and Dr. Dennison included Simon's writer, Warren Wace, Jacob Scott, a man named Fuller and Eli Johnson. But also, as you're pointing out, we don't know everyone because it was a minimum of 10 or 11 people. If you remember, there were several accounts that said people were coming from all directions. And uh, at a minimum, 10 or 11 people. And at a maximum, one account said 25 to 30. I'm sure that's embellished. But again, between 10 and 11 and 25 and 30. 
and what was just named was only five or six. It just occurred to me next week, one week from tonight, tonight is September 14th. One week from tonight will be September 21st. Do you know why that date is significant, Mr. Randall? Uh, no, but I bet Moroni knows. I'll bet he does if he didn't take the reason with him. That's but right. the reason is because it's the 195th anniversary of Joseph Smith bringing the plates home from the hill. And we are lucky enough to have Dan Vogel, who is, well, okay, he's the world's foremost expert on Joseph Smith, and he, at least at this time period. I know he's working his way through Joseph Smith's history, and he hasn't gotten all the way through. He knows more about it than he's forgotten more about Joseph Smith than I've ever known. Let's yeah. put it that way. And he's going to be sharing with us a lot of details about that night and previous years, because that wasn't the first time that Joseph Smith met with Moroni. He'd been meeting with him every night, excuse me, every September 21st, the night of September 21st, for four years before that, or so the story goes. And we'll be examining that story as well, plus a lot of other things. Dan Vogel has told me it's going to be creepy and spooky as it should be for such an occasion. And I won't be there. I'm going out of town, but I will try to catch the show from California. Well, you can call in if possible, like I did when you were doing the thing about Joseph Smith's picture. I'll try to do that. Alleged awesome. picture. Yeah, the alleged one. Yes. Okay, have a great night. Thank you, Bill. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.